Do you remember what Jesus called the greatest commandment? Anybody? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's a good one. That's a good one. What about uh, the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourselves, right? Jesus said, if you do this, you'll keep the whole law. Let me ask you something. Is that a realistic way to live today? Doesn't feel like it, does it? Battle lines are drawn not just between nations in these days, but even within our own nation. Battle lines uh, between people who identify as all sorts of different things, politically and socially, socially and ontologically even. I identify as this or identify as that. Are you on my side or are you on their side? We live in a, an era of, of bipolarism, don't we? You belong to one or you belong to the other. When somebody does something bad in our culture, what's our job, socially speaking, on Twitter, as it may be, if you're on Twitter, someone does something bad, you tweet, that was really terrible, right? That's the important thing. We identify the bad people and the bad actions, and we call them out, and we set up an us versus them sort of dynamic, don't we? We think of people who, who feel or think or live differently than we do. And we create this us versus them dynamic, don't we? These people, they want to take away your gas stoves. They are bad people. It's us versus them. These people, they want to fill your home with noxious gases with their gas stoves. It's us versus them. Isn't it amazing how angry we are about everything? everything. Do we really live in a world where we can seriously say the two great things to build your life around are to love God and love your neighbor because in the meantime, your gas stoves are or aren't emitting all these harmful chemicals that will kill us all. That's maybe not the most significant example I could have chosen. We've set up these battlefields everywhere and it's us versus them in every sort of way. And in the midst of the us versus them, in the midst of, of the war that's raging in our culture, Jesus tells us, love each other and love God, and then you're doing everything you need to do. It, it doesn't seem realistic, does it? What do we say in our culture? Nice guys finish last. How will we possibly move the needle in the world that we live in if all we do is go around loving people? But let me tell you a little bit about the person who gives us this message. You've read about him before, Jesus. There are four books in the Bible that specifically tell the story of his life and ministry. Not his whole life and ministry because no one could record that much information. But what we need to know to really understand who he is and what he's about. And Jesus, he had what? He had followers and disciples, people who actually walked with him and lived with him and laughed with him and cried with him and, you know, supported him and ran away when things got hard until Jesus gathered them back together again and said, you guys, you 12, you are my special 12 and I'm going to use you to change the world. Just love each other. 
And of course, we know, when did Jesus' disciples run away from him? We're almost to the day where we, rem- we actually observed this in more in a special sort of way. They ran away from Jesus when he, he died on the cross. Because when you, when you die, like that's the end. That's the end of the story of your life. That's the end of your influence. That's the end of your ability to affect world events or even, frankly, immediate events in the life of your friends and family around you. The Apostle Paul says uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I mean, he's saying, my job's done. I'm out of here. And to all intents and purposes, that was the case with Jesus as well, wasn't it? And you know, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he was one of those guys who walked with Jesus and who talked with Jesus and saw him at his best and saw him at his least successful. He was there for all of it. He, he broke bread with Jesus. He, they told, he told jokes with Jesus, I'm assuming. There aren't any in the four Gospels, but I'm guessing. They probably joked around a little bit. They laughed together. And now it says, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's saying, I am exiled here. Caesar has said, I need to stop what I'm doing. And he sent me to an island where I can't make a difference any longer. Does it feel like John's a man of great influence? In the midst of this? Does it feel like on the battlefield where Caesar is waging war against the enemies of Rome that John, this follower of Jesus Christ, is anything more than an afterthought? Exiled to the island of Patmos. It says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which says, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches in Asia, in Asia Minor what we call today. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea are seven real places in southwestern Turkey, modern-day southwestern Turkey. You can still visit all of these different places. I personally have been to each one of these places, and some of them have left behind spectacular ruins. Others of them have modern cities built on top. The Church of Philadelphia was one that struck me in particular, where all that remains of the church. By the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Turkey is, on a a per capita basis, the very most Muslim country in the world. And that's where early Christianity really got its start. And all that's left of the church in Philadelphia, uh, probably a few hundred years after John wrote, are two giant pillars of a basilica the Romans built after Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And it was that moment that I felt small and I felt insignificant. Lord, what happened here? This is all that's left of your church in Philadelphia. But John, against all odds, is given a message to share with the churches. And how does the message begin? I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned... I saw seven golden lampstands. Let me pause there for for just a moment. These seven golden lampstands in verse 20 are identified for us. The mystery of the seven golden stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
Now, these seven churches, isn't it interesting? Seven's a pretty significant number in Jewish thinking. What are some things that you know, have to do with sevens in Jewish thinking? There's a big one right off the bat. There are how many days in a week? Seven days in a week. And from this and many other things, this number seven in, in Jewish thought carries the idea of fullness, of completion, the whole thing. And so when John writes a letter to seven churches, he is writing to these churches in particular, but by writing to them, he's also saying this is for all the churches everywhere. These seven churches represent not just seven individual incidents throughout history, but what the church goes through in all of history. It's true that the book of Revelation is not written to us, but it sure is for us. It tells us this is what you will experience as the church. Maybe, probably you won't experience all seven scenarios that he describes. But we can identify with something that's here. We'll get to that in the next couple of weeks, but I want to bring it back. First of all, these seven churches tell us that God has a message for the whole of his people. Secondly, it tells us that the church is meant to be visible to the world, isn't it? There's seven lampstands. And what do lamps do? They give light. And what did Jesus say during his ministry? Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Isn't that an incredible thing? Here we are in Lemon Cove. We're not the biggest and most influential city in the world. I know that may surprise you to hear. And yet, God has called us to be the light of the world. And when he wants to tell us the way he sees us, he sees his people as lampstands. Wow. And maybe today we're wondering how can we possibly pull this off? For a number of reasons, Christianity has lost much of its cultural authority. Many of our beliefs are, to put it mildly, unpopular. And the image of the lampstand gives us a clue because it takes us to Zechariah chapter 4. I'm just going to read two verses out of it for you. Zechariah is having a vision, and an angel says to him, What do you see? And Zechariah says, I see, and look, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Here's that lampstand again. Then the angel said to Zechariah in verse 6, This is the word of the Lord which you are to give to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Folks, it's true that a single person who sets his or her mind to love in imitation of Jesus Christ is not going to change the world. But that's okay. Because God said he's not going to do the work by your might or mine, by your power or mine, but by his own Holy Spirit. You know what that means? Do any of you get anxious when you hear 
things happening out in the world that seem entirely, you know, our world's heading in a direction opposite from where we know it needs to go as followers of Jesus Christ. And we're thinking, we have to do something about this. Anyone ever feel like this? You watch the news and you see, oh my gosh, like it's all falling apart. We have to do something. We have to stop this. And God says to us, in that experience, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, by God's spirit. Folks, can any of you out there, do any of you out there have the magic bullet argument to convince somebody that Jesus is the son of God who died to save us from our sins and who lives again? Do you have a, do you have a sentence or maybe a paragraph or even a book that if you just give it to somebody to read or if you just speak it to somebody, they'll be like, you're right. Why did I never see it before? Anyone out there have that? Because I would really like it if you do. No, of course not. Because it's not by might, not by our ability to craft arguments, not by our ability to use our words, not by our ability to go out and beat the snot out of all the jerks in the world, which Jesus doesn't want us to do, by the way. But it's by the Spirit of God. It's his job to bring results. It is our job to be faithful. It's his job to judge sin. It's our job to love. Love even the lowest and worst sinner of all. And folks, we will never see sin more starkly than if we look into our own hearts. Which is why Paul says, God gave grace to me, the greatest sinner of all. Because only Paul of all his friends, could see into his own heart and understand just how deeply tarnished it was by sin. Not by might, nor by power, but by God's Spirit. We are to be light. But God is the one who makes the light matter. Because what, what else do you know about light? I mean, you can run away from it, can't you? You can do your best to put it out. You could close the door. You could flip the switch. We can be light, but only God can make the light matter. So if that's the first truth, if we're really going to be people who can transform the world, we need to understand that it's by being the church, by being light, by doing what Jesus said, not by winning all of the fights and all of the battles. Folks, that's how people have been trying to live in the world since the very beginning, fighting with power against each other. Why don't we try fighting with love instead? But the second thing we need to know is that Jesus is the great king. He is the promised one. He is the ancient of days. This was such a satisfying passage to study this week. It was so exciting. It was so reassuring. John, like I said, he's, he's on power. He was the one who, who lived with Jesus, who ate with him, who told jokes with him, who cried with him, whatever else they did together. He did it with Jesus. But then here's what happens when John sees Jesus in his vision. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone. We're going to describe him in just a minute. I'm going to skip down to verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, 
How many times had John seen Jesus? But he had never seen him like this. Jesus, his, his deity, his divinity, the fact that he was the son of God was veiled in his flesh. Revealed and yet, yet covered up so that we could see and appreciate and understand it a little bit better without being entirely overwhelmed. But now Jesus has stripped the veil off and he said, this is what I am. This is what I'm like. You have known me in this way. You've known me as the guy you walked with through Palestine who got tired and his feet hurt and all of those things. But now I'm going to show you who I am in heaven. And when that happens, John falls down. All his strength leaves him. Did you catch in the Daniel passage, when God appears to people, even his messengers appear to people, it is so overwhelming that everyone falls down, terrified and without any strength at all. But you know what comes next? You know what comes next? Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be If we can't come into Jesus' presence without experiencing terror because he is so much greater than we could ever possibly understand, he will not leave us terrified in his presence if we belong to him by faith. He picks us back up. And you know what? I want a God like that. I want both things to be true. I want him to be so great that when I come into his presence, I am amazed. So much so that I'm going to be amazed to death unless he does something about it. Is, is he really God if that doesn't happen? Or is he just Superman? But don't get me wrong, Superman is my very favorite superhero. But Superman's got nothing on our God. I used to have this shirt, I've mentioned it before, is all these superheroes, you know, Superman and Batman and Iron Man, we were crossing the Marvel DC universes and bringing them together, Spider-Man, and in the middle of them is Jesus, and Jesus says, and that's how I saved the world, and all these superheroes are looking at him like, wow, love that, I love that. We need a God who is greater than our superheroes, and we have him in Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you a little bit about him. Why did John fall down like he was dead? Well, first, because Jesus is the promised one of Daniel chapter 7. I should have written down all these passages because I'm going to be paging around forever trying to find, especially when we're in the minor prophets. God bless the minor prophets and give me a table of contents to find them all exactly. Daniel chapter 7, and this is what it says. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then in verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. What a, that's an evocative phrase, isn't it? Like a son of man. He looks, he looks like me. He looks human like me, but something is off. He's like a son of man, but something different. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted into his presence like he was someone important. 
and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And among the lampstands in Revelation 1 was someone like a son of man. Here is the one to whom dominion and authority has been given. He is dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. This sounds an awful lot, at least the robe sounds an awful lot like the priestly garments that the high priest would wear. His robe evokes that memory of the priest's robes. The golden sash dresses him in splendor. He's someone to see and notice. Can Caesar in his pomp match the vision? Can President Biden or President Trump or any other president that we've had look anything like the one like a son of man? His feet, they, they gleam like a purified bronze. Right? His skin is glowing somehow. He's something special. And the, the fact that it's refined points out he is pure. He doesn't carry the impurities of sin, the taint of corruption that every other human being does. His voice is like many waters, a roaring rush of power every time he speaks, such that you would be like, I want to hear, but it's too loud. Like the roar of the waterfall as you're next to it. And it adds to the experience, doesn't it? Or like, you, you know, you watch fireworks. Anyone here like watching fireworks? It's okay to admit it. I mean, they're awesome. They're so much fun. But my favorite part of fireworks, the sound. The sound. Ah, oh, it just, it tells you there's something powerful that's happening up there. Those big booms and explosions. I remember I'd only been here about a year and I was uh, working out of the manse and working in the, my office there. And it faces the mountain over here. And Tom Cairns was blasting at the quarry that day. And the guys at the quarry, they accidentally put too much dynamite or, you know, whatever the explosive is into the hole. So what happened at first, you know, they, the first charges go off, and they blew the whole rock apart. There are giant boulders flying everywhere. And then the second charges were exposed to the air. And so they exploded, and they didn't do a whole lot more damage. I, Tom, I hope I'm telling the story right. I should have you tell it. But I don't think they did a whole lot more damage. But they, the concussion from the explosion, it felt like a giant slapped the side of the house. And that's how you knew there was something powerful going on. And Jesus' voice is like the rush of many waters. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Does that sound scary? It should. Because he is the judge. And out of his mouth comes the sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations that have set themselves up as pretenders to God's authority, saying, we will give you rights. We will tell you what's right and wrong. We will rule for our own glory. And respect instead of as God's under shepherds of his people. His face is like the sun. John, I get the impression that he can neither tear his eyes away from the face of Jesus, nor can he bear to continue looking at him because of the glory tangibly radiating off of him. His hair is white like wool, like snow, even though this is one of the first descriptions, I saved it until last. 
Because do you remember in that Daniel 7, it says that he saw the ancient of days, who is God, who had hair that was white like wool. Jesus Christ has the authority of God in heaven himself. And where is he? He walks among the lampstands. He walks among his church. He walks among us this morning. And every time we gather, and everywhere we go, together and apart, he walks among us by his Holy Spirit. He knows even before we open our mouths to tell him what we've experienced today, what we're afraid of, what the pressures are on us, what our temptations are. Folks, this is not merely the nice guy Jesus of casual religion. This is the ancient of days, the great judge, the holy one. Examine, we ought to examine ourselves right now. Are you ever overwhelmed by who Jesus is? Or are we serving a Jesus who just is adding a little bit on top of the rest of our lives? Does this sound like a Jesus who's satisfied with that? This sound, you know, this Jesus with all of his power is he there just so, you know, we'll be a little bit happier? Is he there just so we'll be a little bit nicer? Or is he the God who speaks his new people into existence, at whose feet we fall down in terror until he lifts us up, and he will lift us up? If the idea of terror leaves a bad taste in your mouth, first of all, I don't entirely blame you. Uh, anyone here like horror movies? No. Who likes horror movies? It's unpleasant to be scared, folks. This isn't like you can still be a Christian if you like horror movies. I'm just saying, I don't get it. But if the idea of terror leaves a bad taste in your mouth, then first of all, there's a sense in which you just need to hear, get over it. That's who he is. And wishing won't make him any different. But secondly, I have good news for you. This amazing Jesus still walks among the churches, holding the seven stars in his right hand. Not with the idea of waiting to close his hand to crush the church, but to shelter and protect it in his powerful right hand. Most commentators, as G.K. Beale writes, most commentators agree that the significance of this is that Christ is portrayed as a kingly and priestly figure, since the figure in the two Daniel texts has the same features. Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 looks pretty much the same as the Jesus described in Revelation chapter 1. Part of Christ's priestly role is to tend the lampstands. The Old Testament priests 
would trim the lamps, remove the wick and old oil, and refill the lamps with fresh oil, and relight the, relight those that had gone out. Likewise, Christ tends the ecclesial lampstands, the church lampstands, by commending, correcting, exhorting, and warning. And we're going to see all those things in chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, in order to secure the church's fitness for service as light bearers in a dark world. See, Jesus is not walking among the lampstands, like we said, to crush. Not walking among the lampstands so that we'll fall down and never get back up. But walking among the lampstands so we will really give light. And let me, we're going to dig into this much more next week. But let me end with these, these four points. Jesus walks among the lampstands. You feeling alone today? Like, I get it. I do, but Jesus walks beside you. He is really present to us. He really knows us. He really tends us. And how practical is this? Jesus is among the churches. Secondly, Jesus never leaves his people in terror, overwhelmed and overcome. He laid his right hand on John and told him to not be afraid. He is this way. Jesus is all of these things, the, the white hair, the eyes of flaming fire, for his people, not against them. Third, Jesus has triumphed. Jesus, uh, in talking to John, when he touches him, Jesus places his right hand and says, don't be afraid. Then what? I am the first and the last, which is a title for God himself. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and as a result, I hold the keys of death and Hades. He has walked the path that he calls us to, the path of love God, love your neighbor, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, from the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing by putting me to death. They are wrong, but forgive them. He walked this path. He did it. He shows us first that we can do it too, not on our own, but with the help of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, he shows us that it really matters when we love instead of line up for battle like everyone else. Jesus changed the world by his death and resurrection. Otherwise, why are you here this morning? Finally, Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, the bottom line is we don't really know exactly what that means. It could mean uh, literally an angel. He identifies in verse 20, uh, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So it could be like a guardian angel of the seven churches, and Jesus holds them in his right hand where he commands them to go and to do and to care for his church. Or it could possibly mean, because that word angel, angelos in Greek, also means messenger. So it could be the people that John sent to the seven churches with his letter. There are some problems with that interpretation. It could also mean maybe the human guardians of these churches, the leaders of these churches. God holds them in his right hand. He empowers them and gives them authority and equips them for all that they need to do. 
But whatever the exact right interpretation of the seven stars is, in any case, the basic idea is that Jesus holds the leadership, direction, and protection of the churches in his right hand, which is his hand of power. The churches have everything they need in Jesus Christ to be faithful. We are empowered by Jesus to be his people. We can do it not by might nor by power, but by God's Holy Spirit. And by God, it's worth doing. Because when we obey Jesus, remember the one we're serving. One like a son of man, given kingdom and authority and power. Dressed in an amazing robe and golden sash, he is our priest. The hair on his head reminds us that he is the ancient of days. And his eyes remind us that he holds the judgment of the world in his hands. His feet, like bronze glowing in a furnace, tell us that he is pure. Folks, these days... It's so hard to even pick out what is good and right and beautiful. But it's all contained in Jesus. And if we serve him, we'll always be looking for the good and beautiful and true. His voice is like the sound of rushing water. That thing that, ah, oh, it's overwhelming to hear, but wow. You can never hear enough of it. He holds the seven stars. And out of his mouth was the sharp double-edged sword with which to judge the nations. It's popular to say in these days, be careful that you don't find yourself on the wrong side of history. But we serve the God who holds history in his hands. And he's not subject to any human judgment, but we all are subject to his. Next week, we're going to see what does Jesus commend in his churches? What does he say? Keep on doing that. What does he promise to his churches? You're struggling and here's how I'm going to help. And what does he criticize in his churches so that we can repent and live as his people as well?